Welcome to episode 91 of the Search with Canada podcast recorded on Friday the 11th of December 2020. My name is Mark Williams-Cook and today I'm going to be talking to you about the Google December core update and some interesting EU guidelines that have been brought in around what search engines have to tell businesses. We're going to talk about an interesting thread on brands and brand perception in PAAs, so that's people also asked results that I'm always interested in, and we've got some listener Q&A we'll be going through. And before we kick off, as usual, I want to tell you that this podcast is kindly sponsored by the people at Sightbulb. Sightbulb is a desktop-based Mac and Windows SEO auditing bit of software. Every episode, I kind of talk about some features that I like about Sightbulb because we've used it in the agency for a long time now. I've used it for a long time. It's a brilliant bit of software. Uh, use it on every, basically every site that I do SEO on. One of the first things I do is is run a Sightbulb report to, to give myself an overview. And I'll talk about each uh, kind of feature on each episode. But they made it nice and easy for me because they've just released on December the 8th version 4.6 of Sightbulb and it's got a brilliant new feature which is response versus render and what this means is Sightbulb can now do a comparison of the raw HTML response you get versus the rendered response. And up until now, this is something I've always done with uh, plugins in Chrome to quickly side-by-side compare the raw HTML versus the rendered document object model. This is an evolution of another feature Sightbulb brought in a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago now, which was they would show you which links on the page were either generated, inserted, or modified by JavaScript. all of this came about really to reinforce a lot of this discussion in the SEO community around how Google actually handles this JavaScript rendering and where issues might be. So absolutely brilliant feature. It will help you diagnose any issues uh, your site might have in terms of JavaScript, Google rendering and indexing. And the great thing about Sitebulb and listening to this podcast is they have done a very special offer for you. If you go to sitebulb.com and go to forward slash SWC, you can get a 60-day trial of Sitebulb as opposed to the usual 14 days. No credit card required. So give it a go. I thought we would kick off in reverse order today because why not? So we're going to start with the user Q&A for the podcast. So I've picked three questions that we've had uh, that I'm going to answer. I picked them very quickly. I haven't actually kind of sat down and planned out answers to these. So I just think they're interesting questions. So I just want to talk through them and talk through my thinking of them. Um, if you think I'm wrong or if I miss something, let me know. Um, find me on Twitter or LinkedIn and uh, I'll certainly add anyone else's opinion to these these answers. So the first question is from Manish Biktar and he says, if the Google SERP starts showing a mix of results of commercial and 
information landing pages what is the intent of that query so which page do we need to create for that and also what's happening if Google Ads are showing at the top for that query so I think this is a really good question because that's something as SEOs we tell lots of clients to focus on um, and certainly in-house I know people work on it which is understanding the intent of a search as opposed to just thinking about the keywords and part of the strategy that hopefully you'll be forming as SEO teams and agencies and in-house and wherever you work is one of the things you'll be doing is googling the type of things you want to rank for and seeing what type of results Google is giving so an example I use a lot of the time is uh, with how-to videos very commonly uh, sorry with how-to queries I've jumped ahead there with how-to queries you'll very commonly get video results at the top because it's normally easier to watch someone do something than read about it and try and imagine it so if that's the case where Google has decided that okay I think users want to see a video for this query it means that of course if you write content with the hope of ranking for that query it's going to be unlikely that you're going to get the top position because it's not just about the you know content isn't just about what you write it's about how it's delivered as well so this question about what do we do when Google is showing a mix of say e-commerce and informational pages is well actually we just need to accept that just because there is one search term doesn't mean there is one intent behind it because everybody is different and the same search term may mean different things to different people and where we see this clear split so Google might be showing half uh, commercial transaction pages and half informational pages it's because Google has realized okay maybe from their kind of click data etc that the intent here is split so some people are wanting further information and some people are wanting to buy so in answer to the question what should we be creating it would be if you can I would do both and maybe combine them onto a single page I actually had this discussion with a client um, a couple of weeks ago when we were doing some SEO training and they were asking me about how much um, how much content do they need on category pages for their e-commerce site so they said okay well we're under the impression we need to write you know like two three hundred words on this category page to get it to rank and we had this discussion about it because I read the the kind of category text out to them and we we kind of came to the conclusion together that it was waffle you know it wasn't actually any useful information but then when I started asking them well what questions do your customers actually ask you about these products then they came alive and they had lots of answers so we said well actually why don't we use that content for the category page because it is genuinely helpful it's asking people it's answering people's questions that they ask about those products um, and we're not just writing content for the sake of it so I think there is um, some circumstances where you can mix that informational and commercial intent together um, there's a lot of um, user experience things as well to keep in mind so you want to keep an e-commerce site still looking like an e-commerce site and you certainly don't want to hinder the ability for people to browse and shop by making it too heavy leaning into content and there's lots of kind of user testing and workshop ways you can you can make sure you're doing the best possible job there but yeah the simple answer is you can cover 
both bases. Um, the only side note I would add to that is what I've seen in some um, some situations is the type of informational sites that rank sometimes are very non-biased kind of review sites and they're nothing to do with e-commerce sites. If that's the case, then I would take that into your planning as well and say, well, look, you know, Google has, for whatever reason, made the decision that only these types of dedicated sites to writing information and reviewing are ranking here. So maybe we should focus on our what's what we're good at, which is the commercial side and selling and supporting these products. And there's actually another way you can get there, which is, you know, you actually outreach and get involved with those websites and get them to review your products and you can give your opinion and and actually help and get visibility that way. So I hope that answers your question, Anish. The second question we have is from Tommy McMaster and it says, what are the best practices around maintaining SEO rankings during a site redesign or migration? Any useful plugins? <laughs> so I assume it's probably, uh, you're asking about a WordPress site, I would guess, because you've mentioned plugins. Um, that there's a you know there's a huge answer to that question because there's lots you can do um, with migrations. Um, what you've touched on there, which is during a site design or migration, is there are different types, if you like, of migration. So lots of things that you change site-wide can affect rankings. So the most obvious is a URL migration when. Um, maybe you've rebuilt the site and existing content will appear on new URLs. Um, you've got domain migration, so that's when the whole domain will change, whether the actual design changes may, may or may not be the case. Um, a site redesign, certainly in terms of internal linking and architecture, um, if that's migrated and changed, that can affect rankings. The design, as in how the actual content is laid out and displayed on the page, can affect rankings as well. Um, even uh, you know, things like infrastructure changes, server changes um, can have an impact as well. So it's, it's worth bearing all these things in mind because all of them have a hand to play. And it really comes down to weighing up the, the risk, in, in my opinion. Um, and that's the, the risk of what you are, um, what you're kind of potentially losing um, during these migrations. So if you're doing a, you know, if you're working on a site that does millions of pounds of revenue every month through organic traffic, you need to be very careful about any changes you make. And you probably don't want to do a domain migration and a site redesign and rewrite all the content at once. Um, because if something does go not according to plan and goes badly, it's very difficult to then actually unpick which one of those things that you change caused those issues. So with larger sites, even basic things like, say, um, title tag changes, if you're rebuilding the site, we've advised clients to do this in phases. So let's migrate the URLs and then see how that goes. Give it a few weeks, make sure our traffic is stable and everything's how we expected. Then we'll execute the changes of the titles make sure that's fine and has the desired or expected outcome and then do the next thing, et cetera, et cetera. So the first advice would be if it's a really big site to um, do it in stages. Secondly, um, you'll hear different things from different people about 
what to expect in terms of traffic loss during a migration. If you're moving domain or moving URLs, um, even if you do everything correctly, I have seen sites temporarily lose traffic. If you're going to forecast that, I tend to personally do it on unbranded traffic because unless unless you've done something horribly wrong, it's very unlikely you're going to lose rankings for your brand name, assuming you know you haven't got an incredibly generic brand name. So normally it's the unbranded type of traffic that's at risk. And as a rule of thumb, my line in the sand is if you're losing more than 20% of your organic traffic um, immediately after a migration, then something's gone very badly. And if kind of the traffic loss is lasting more than 12 weeks, then that raises warning signals as well. So I've done migrations, I've done, been involved in literally over 100 migrations. I've seen sites lose about that before and then recover fully. I've seen sites have absolutely no real impact in traffic during a migration and I've seen sites within a couple of weeks actually have a net big positives. The biggest mistake I see on migrations when they're handled internally is people forget to redirect the none canonical URLs. So that's URLs your site might have um, where, for instance, you've got really great links from external sites that maybe have like marketing parameters in the URL. And that means that if you just do your redirects based on the internal URLs, those old links you've got coming to pages that might be very important to contributing to some of your rankings are then just 404ing and they're not feeding into your site. Same with um, bringing along with you any old um, domain migrations and everything that's happened in the past. It's always worth digging around in a tool like Majestic or Ahrefs to see what links exist, where they're from and make sure you bring them with you. So loads of advice. Um, there's loads of guides online about um, about site migrations, but there's definitely a planning, a testing phase there. And yeah, the redirects are obviously the, the main thing. Uh, the last question is from Neil and he asks, I noticed of late that some SEO tools like the SEMrush site audit <laughs> whine about page titles and H1s being identical. Is there some specific issue with such an implementation? So is it a problem that page titles and H1s are identical? So that's a, I think that's an interesting question. Um, my immediate reaction is I haven't heard of any specific issue with that being an implementation. I well, I certainly don't think it's an issue in that it's a problem. I would say if any, if anything, it could possibly be an opportunity. So we have to bear in mind these auditing tools not only kind of find problems with sites, they sometimes lump them together with opportunities, which I would class as two different things. So an, an issue is, you know, you are doing this wrong or it's not best practice. Uh, well, no, I'd say you're, you're doing this wrong, so it, it's actively harming you. Whereas maybe something like this is an opportunity where, well, you're not doing this wrong, there's no reason you can't do that, but you might find it more beneficial if you did it in a slightly different way. So two interesting points related to this are uh, from the Search Off The Record podcast I was listening to a couple of weeks ago, they were talking uh, about rendering and indexing, and one of the interesting points was around rendering the main content of a page and looking at things like the font size and the H1 size. And 
we've kind of known this for a while, but it was, I think, sideways hinted at again that, for instance, if you had H1s and H2s on a page, but you applied the styling so they were not um, differentiated from normal paragraph text, that Google might actually discount the importance of, the, of that H1 and those H2s. Uh, because it's actually looking at how the user sees the page and obviously if the text is bigger, whether it is an H1 or H2, it's it's hinting that that's maybe a more important kind of guide to what's on the page. Now, the general practice I've always used in terms of page titles and H1s is it is an opportunity to essentially use two similar phrases, if you like, to say the same thing. Um, I keep in mind normally that the page title, you're more constrained with the length that's visible in the SERP, so try and keep it short and snappy and um, trying to match roughly what we think the user's gonna be targeting, whereas the H1 tends to, I tend to use that as, because the H1 is, is really practically the title for the user on the page, because if you think about when you load a, a web page, it's very rare that you are reading the title that's in the browser tab at the top because normally that's truncated heavily anyway because browser tabs are tiny and it's all the way up at the top there. So the, the title almost for the user is that H1 on the page. So I tend to use that as a long-winded, more detailed version of the page title, which means we can target different um, keywords. So I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's a specific issue, no. I think it's an opportunity. I would agree it's an opportunity um, and not an issue, so it might be worth looking at. Breaking tradition with previous episodes, I am going to talk a little bit more about the Google Core update. Normally I avoid talking uh, about them, especially early on, because there is um, sometimes a lot of things that are said that turn out not to be true. But there are some useful uh, facts that have kind of surfaced about the December Core update that I think are worth sharing. So one thing that lots of people observed is that we did see this huge change on the 4th of December and sub in the subsequent days it seemed that the changes kind of weren't so big. However, Google today, so that's the 11th of December, have confirmed that those changes are still rolling out. So the, um, the December core update hasn't finished being applied and actually we have seen more bigger shifts this morning as well. So it does seem to be coming in a couple of waves, but the fact is it's not finished rolling out yet. Um, something interesting that wasn't on my radar and um, I discovered this, um, so Glenn Gabe had mentioned this and I actually found it because Lily Ray, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, had mentioned that Gabe had mentioned it, so I found out eventually, is that these core updates uh, regularly impact Google Discover traffic as well. So it is worth checking in in Google Search Console on your Google Discover traffic. Um, I don't have so many clients that we have good amounts of Discover traffic, so that wasn't really on my radar. So if it wasn't on your radar either, that's something um, to look out for. The kind of third thing is that 
I think I think it's worth mentioning is this update was big. And by big, I mean in terms of breadth and depth. So breadth, I mean the previous core updates, we have seen, I think, this pattern where it's been mainly affecting certain sectors. And this update does appear to be more across the board. So whichever kind of SERP monitoring tool you look at, so something like SEM Rush gives this 0 to 10 volatility across different um, categories. There's about 20 odd categories and all of them are above 9 out of 10 on desktop and mobile is very similar with I think only one uh, which was real estate came in at 8.7. Now obviously they're um, you know compound metrics that SEM Rush uses on a 0 to 10 scale but I think they're useful in terms of comparison to previous updates so we haven't seen that much movement across all sectors for quite a long time so I think there is this this um, this breadth to this update and secondly in terms of depth and by depth I mean the actual impact so I've seen examples on Twitter of people complaining they've lost almost half their organic traffic and we're talking about significant amounts here and on the other side of the coin some people have had huge uplifts in visibility so far as well um, so this to me this update is interesting I've noticed it on a few of our clients as well on both sides of the coin so we've had clients gain and lose some traffic as well nothing quite as extreme uh, fortunately as um, other people in the community but I think all of those things are worth uh, considering in in context to this update so it is broad and it does seem to be having this this really big impact the only specific case I've seen affected was um, in the Systrix write-up where they specifically showed that dictionary and lexicon type sites had lost a lot of visibility and this is something that had again um, slipped through um, me noticing it which was in October the Google quality rater guidelines had kind of given this quite specific view of what Google wanted search results to look like and mentioned about these kind of dictionary type sites maybe not being quite as important as they used to be because Google's very good with those uh, instant answers as we know now. So out the back end of this as we get with every update we had uh, people complaining to you know to put not a fine point on it about how Google's guidance on these updates can be very vague and that it's difficult especially for small businesses to sometimes understand why they were you know building a business off the back of organic traffic they're hiring people they're buying stock they're getting premises whatever it is you know reinvesting money into their business as you do only to have kind of the rug pulled out from under them very quickly and with no explanation of of how to get those rankings back and this brings me on to an article I found on Search Engine Land written by Greg Sterling, which is about some EU guidelines concerning kind of search engine transparency. So I had a read through this article and um, well done, Greg, for covering this because it did involve delving into some rather dense and heavy EU regulation documents. So I'm really appreciative that someone else kind of did that and gave a summary which I'll share with you now. So 
what Greg's pointing out is there were some articles that were published in 2019 uh, from the European Parliament that were around promoting fairness and transparency for business users of online intermediation services. So intermediation services being things like marketplaces like Amazon and search engines. So those tools that connect us up with the, the businesses and services that we need. So there's some new guidelines that were published this year that further bolster those original regulations. And they seem to be quite specific around search engines. So Greg's kindly written up a, uh, a plain language uh, description of these, which I'll read out to you. So firstly, uh, these guidelines say they're not legally binding, which does leave me with the question about how how Google will adhere to them. But they're designed to help facilitate compliance with Article 5, which is the 2019 uh, stuff I just spoke about, which says in the relevant part, providers of online search engines shall set out the main parameters which individually or collectively are most significant in determining ranking and the relative importance of those main parameters by providing an easily and publicly available description drafted in plain and intelligible language on the online search engines of those providers. They shall keep that description up to date. These ranking factors can be presented in different places through the, uh, the guidelines recommend a single touch point, for example, in a user dashboard that could reference or index all the relevant informational tools available to explain ranking transparency. Regardless, the information can't be buried in terms and conditions. It must be found in an easily accessible location on the online search engines webpage. This may be an area that does not require users to log in or register to be able to read the description. As indicated, the discussion of ranking parameters should be presented in plain and intelligible language, although in some cases it may be more uh, for technical professional users. Ranking variables but not algorithms must be disclosed. Article 5 and the guidelines also say that search engines and marketplaces are not required to, quote, disclose algorithms or any information that with reasonable certainty would result in the enabling of deception of consumers or consumer harm through the manipulation of search results, end quote. Accordingly, they need to enumerate the key variables or considerations that determine rankings, but not the algorithms themselves. However, search engines and marketplaces are obligated to, quote, describe the relative importance of the main parameters, end quote. Some hypothetical ranking parameters provided by the EU include page loading speed, security, e.g. HTTPS, images, e.g. type number quality, consumer reviews, e.g. number, rating and recency, Trader-consumer interaction, e.g. answered queries responsiveness, dispute settlement history, e.g. number of consumer complaints slash solutions found, offline service quality indicators, e.g. hotel star, rating, delivery performance, the degree to which places, uh, brands, etc. are familiar or known in society, 
data protection score, e.g. based on reviewing the privacy policies of apps by an app store, web accessibility, content quality, keyword tagging, title accuracy and relevance, and concise answers, for example, as regards products or services offered or in response to FAQs. <clears throat> so I think it's um, really interesting, perhaps a little bit of a naive request in terms of, I think Google's answer can almost rightly in a way be, it depends in that they have They've certainly provided this information clearly for things like Google My Business. So there is literally a bullet point list of things you can do to increase your visibility within Google My Business. The guidelines as they have been for many years for organic search are a lot more um, kind of vague and bigger picture. Um, we've certainly got a lot of clues from the quality rater guidelines, but when it comes to this um, specifically, requesting the not just the parameters but their weight in ranking um, as far as I know a lot of the weights are calculated anyway through machine learning algorithms and again I was listening to Garish just um, a couple of days ago talking about uh, canonical signals and how it's very difficult to manually adjust the weight of one signal because there are knock-on effects. So if you think, okay, well, we should be listening to this signal more closely, so you manually kind of up that dial, it means that by the nature, when you make that signal more important, you make all the other signals less important, which then can have unforeseen um, impact on ranking. So you go back and say, oh, okay, well, it's because we're now not treating this ranking signal as important enough. So we'll manually tune this one up. And again, as you can probably see, you end up with this endless condition where you're just uh, chasing one factor after another or several at once. So one of the solutions that they've got is just defining the intended end outcome and letting machines do those adjustments. Um, so I don't know how much um, we're going to see come out the back of this, but I do think it's really interesting that the EU is trying to get some transparency from search engines, especially other search engines like Amazon, which many, um, many businesses have had great success and suffered greatly as well at the hands of. So remain to be seen what happens with that over the next year. Finally, I'm going to talk about people also ask results, PAA results. As you probably know, I'm especially interested in PAA results uh, because we run the alsoasked.com tool, which kind of maps out these results, and I find them incredibly uh, interesting. So there's a thread uh, by JR Oaks on Twitter, and he's put subject negative brand impact of PAA results. Uh, I'll just read through this thread, thread um, give some commentary on it because I do think it's really interesting and it's something I've spoken about before in terms of uh, brands protecting themselves um, in terms of if they have people also ask results. So Google has been including more balanced questions into people also ask results. Here is a selection 
where I think they go too far. This selection was found in seven searches at random for companies that came to mind. So what is done here is a branded search and then highlighted one of the people also ask questions that Google is showing. So for g2.com, there's a question, is G2 crowd legit? If you did a search for Apple, there are questions, why is Apple so bad? Is Apple really worth? Oddly worded. And why is Apple so expensive? Um, for REI.com, there is, is REI worth the price? Is REI.com legit? And Pinterest, there is a question, is Pinterest a safe site? So what he's pointing out here in the kind of second reply to his thread is many of these are leading and loaded questions which can influence the user's perception of the brand. I should mention that I altered the results to remove the ads in GMB for a clearer view. Very honest of you to kind of point that out, but um, point stands that he is saying, you know, these, these questions change how you think about the brand when you Google them because you probably weren't thinking these things when you were doing that original search. So he goes on to point out, the issue is that many of these searches are done by a very small fraction of users, yet make visibility to all the brand's prospects and customers the seed of doubt on some aspects of the company. You can have 30 searches influencing brand perception for millions of people. We know that results are not driven purely by search interest are based on several examples we have seen from major brands with similar results. In many cases, the negative questions are asked only by a handful of users over a six month period. Further, in most cases, tens or hundreds of other question intents have much more user interest in search. And then he's, the next couple of kind of replies about he's looked at this more broadly, got a list of Fortune 500 companies from 2019, and then run some sentiment analysis um, using different models on the PAA questions. And the results were with uh, two different models that he's used, 63% um, of PAA questions for companies were overall negative, and the second model, so same data set as far as I understand, but a different model to judge, was that 80% of the questions could be judged as having overall negative sentiment. So that's pretty significant, uh, whichever, whichever set of results um, that you take. And he goes on to say, here's a look at two separate brands with arguably the same product. One has a reflection of web content, which reinforces, in my honest opinion, an unfair difference between the two products. They are both not, uh, they're both really not that great for you. So the phrases are this, why is Coca-Cola not good for you? Why does a Coke, what, sorry, what does a Coke do to your body? Can Coca-Cola kill you? What is Coca-Cola's net worth? What brands does PepsiCo own? Is Pepsi owned by PepsiCo? Who owns PepsiCola now? And does Pepsi own KFC? So his point here is, you know, Pepsi and Coca-Cola arguably very similar. Um, drinks and Coca-Cola is really kind of leaning towards those very negative questions about can this drink kill you and Pepsi is more about the kind of ownership of that brand. Um, I will link to the rest of this thread because uh, he goes on to give some 
more analysis about the types of companies, their revenue, um, and some other examples which are too long um, just to kind of read out. But I think it's a really interesting uh, thread to get into. So you can find this in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. I'd recommend anyway, if you're doing SEO, you do follow JR Oaks. He's just literally at JR Oaks, J-R-O-A-K-E-S on Twitter. Really interesting uh, person, always posting uh, great stuff about SEO. But if you want to learn more about PAA and strategies, I'll also link in the show notes to um, some analysis that was done uh, by SEMrush, which analyzed, I think it was a million keywords they had as their initial data set. And as well, they they had some looks uh, into into brands and PA results there. But either way, if you are working in-house or agency side for a big brand, it would probably be good if you haven't already uh, to review what's coming up in those results. And that's everything we've got time for in this episode. I will be back on Monday, the 21st of December, and this will be our last episode of 2020. I'm hoping to get some guests on again, like we did last year. So we'll have three or four people and we'll have a chat about um, how things have gone in 2020, at least uh, in terms of SEO and what we think is gonna be important for the new year. It's always fun to make some predictions. And then I imagine I will probably have two weeks off from the podcast, so maybe back on the 11th of January uh, with episode 93. So hope you'll subscribe, join us um, for the final show before Christmas, and I hope you'll have a great week.